turn to uh, two passages. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow these easily in the order of worship. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. Leviticus 19 will be starting in verse 9. Something that we have, uh, that we have said multiple times as a church is that uh, a deep-felt desire for what we hope to see us become and, and what we are being and what we want to become is that we, we do not want to do something that's very common in the Bible Belt. And, and I refer a lot to the Bible Belt, and I want to be clear that there's some real benefits that are afforded by being in this part of the country. I grew up in Mississippi, which is, you better believe me, Bible Belt. And uh, where we are is Bible Belt. It's a very churched area. There are some real benefits to living in this area. And there are some unique challenges. One of the challenges is that it's very easy to default to what I would call having church, meaning... You have a meeting, 9.30 or 11 on Sunday morning. You have church, you go to it, you leave. But it's a compartment of life. It's not very reflective. It's largely detached for how life really works in general. That is not what we want. That does not sound like the Bible. It is not what Jesus came to accomplish. We don't want to have church. We want to be the church. And when I say that, I don't mean that we're going to be the end-all, be-all in Greenville, but I mean that we want to be what the church is supposed to be, which involves doing, but it's not just doing, it's being. Now, I've, I've quoted a, a friend of mine to you before who said, he was talking about community. Everybody talks about community. Community is kind of a cool word now. But he said this one time. He said, you know, not having real community is easy. And it's not awesome. He said, having real community is not easy, but it's awesome. And I'm going to tweak that a little bit. And really, it's just another way of saying that is having church is easy. And it is not awesome. And people who have grown up having church typically leave it in droves. Being the church is not easy, and it is awesome. Uh, This is a big Sunday for us in a lot of ways. I'm going to refer to that a little bit more in a second. But as the year is beginning, and maybe in a way we're kind of recalibrating to, okay, the years before us, I want to look at these texts, which may seem like, what in the world are we looking at these texts for? Very Old Testament sounding. With this question in mind, what does it look like not to just have church, but to be the church? Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, And for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. Then Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner 
the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Let's pray together. Father, we have spoken your words from the Bible at the very beginning of our service. We have sung about your words. We've heard your words assure us of your pardon. But in a particular way, we need to hear them right now. And we ask that all that hinders that, all that preoccupies that in our hearts and even our emotions, we ask that you would overrule that and give us ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Technically, fall doesn't begin for about a week and a half. I think it's in the wee hours of the 23rd. Fall technically starts. But uh, as far as how we really do life, fall is underway. Um, school has been underway for several weeks. Had a big football Saturday, uh, yesterday. All I did was watch football because I'm a giant, giant football fan. <laughs> the laughter is mockery if you're visiting. Just... Uh, and well-placed mockery. And, uh, you know, we, we got Labor Day behind us. So as far as how we really do life, fall is really underway. And like I said, this is a big Sunday for us. Uh, really kind of the, the extra things that we do during the week start back this week. Um, tonight is really a time of celebration and enjoying each other and celebrating God's provision of this space where we meet and sort of repraying a, a prayer of dedication of ourselves and the space. Um, and then everything follows this fall. And the thing is, not only is it a big sort of kickoff time for us, it's really a kickoff time for almost everything. And September gets loaded quickly, I'm sure you have felt. And it would be, it would be safe to say, I, we might shrink from saying it just this starkly, but I'm going to say it this starkly. Someone could look at our schedules for the fall and see what's really important to us. You can't say yes to everything, right? Even to all the good stuff you could do. It's kind of like, you know, good requests for money in the mail. You, you can't say yes to everything. You can say yes to some things. You've got to say no to some things. The way we land in our schedule would show what's important to us. Now, as we're starting this fall, and there are things the church is going to be doing, and there are all these other aspects of your life that are kind of, you know, nipping at you, to get at your time, maybe your whole family's time. I wanted to look at this text. Now, it may seem like this is a weird text as a, you know, fall kickoff passage. So let's, let's just kind of start and get on the same page. Let's get our bearings. When you come to a passage and you haven't had much intro and we haven't had no intro really to these texts, it's good to do a little bit of who, what, where, when. So let's literally do that. Who, what, where, when. To whom are these words given? It's from the Old Testament. To whom are these words given? God is talking to whom? The Israelites. 
He's talking to his people. All right, what is it? It's his law. These are words that were not like a code that I'd really like you to do, but, you know, I understand if you go off the rails a little bit. This was, from God, his law for his people in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Where is it? This takes place in the wilderness. This this is in the history of Israel in between when they were enslaved in Egypt. All right, they were slaves there. They're rescued by God through Moses. And they're not yet in this other place. They're on the way to this other place. In between, they're in the wilderness. That's where they receive this law. When is it? Now, it's harder to say exactly when Leviticus comes, but it's easier to say when Deuteronomy comes. And this part of Deuteronomy is really toward the end. Deuteronomy is like a giant review. It's not so much new material. It's re-establishing things God has already said. When the people are about to cross over the Jordan River. Cross over into what? Now, this has everything to do with what we're talking about. Cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, remember who the Israelites are. They are former slaves. How much land owning do slaves do? None. You work other people's land. Or even if Egypt gives you some allotment of land to live on, there's no real ownership of it. You're a slave. You're the lowest in the pecking order. God rescues them. They have no land in the wilderness. Their existence is nomadic. But when they cross over that river and they begin to drive out these nations that God's commanded them to drive out, they will become landowners. Now, think about, God, and it's hard for us to feel this. It really is. It's hard for us to feel how big a deal this is, the land. Because our cultural moment is more a knowledge-based economy, right? Greenville publications, of which there are legion, regularly run pieces about knowledge-based economy. Have we really gone from being this textile city to where we need to be in a knowledge-based economy? In a knowledge-based economy, so much of it's immaterial. It's stuff you're emailing. It's figures. It's stuff being white. This is very tangible. What was the land back then? It was everything. It was everything. It was this stuff. If you were an Israelite that you had not earned, God was giving it to you. In fact, there are even places in the law where he says, you're going to come into this land and there'll already be vineyards in place that you did not plant. And all of a sudden, it's your vineyard. It's not by your cleverness. It's not by your hard work. You've been given it. The land's entrusted to you. It's a gift. It's finite. It's not the whole earth. When they go in, God is very specific about the boundaries, the borders of the land that he's giving to each tribe that would then be broken down by different families. But here's the main thing. That land is the potential for really everything that you plan to do or hope to accomplish. I mean, it's not just the crops, although it's big time that. But like to build a house, to build a house for your family, you cannot go down to the big box building supply store in Judah. There isn't one. 
you would quite literally use stones and wood and mortar that you took from your land or maybe someone in your family's land. That's how you would build where you live. Or shelter for your animals. What did your animals live off? Did you go down to a local seed and feed? They live off your land. And really, any wealth you're going to have, it it is wrapped up in the land. It is everything. Especially for former slave owners. And when God is giving these commands about your land, your land, He says, it's yours. Look at, look at uh, the first passage again. I'm going to read this with a little emphasis here. First passage, Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. God is really saying, it's yours. And former slave owners or the children, uh, not slave owners, slaves, Have I been saying slave owners this whole time? Okay, good, because that would be wrong. Former slaves and the children of former slaves, when they heard this about your land, your land, they must have just been going, excellent. You know, they wouldn't have sounded like Mr. Burns on The Simpsons, but I mean, they must have just been going, that is awesome. And it's about time after this nomadic life we've had. Okay, now in that context... God gives this command. And He doesn't just give it in these two places. He gives it actually in a third place. When God is that repetitive, He is saying, this is important, and I think that you are prone to forget it. And what is the command? It has a negative and a positive. What's the negative? It's this. Do not do something that would come utterly natural to you. Don't do it. What would that be? It would be to have your land and to say, okay, my land is finite. I only have so much. This is what God entrusted to us. Plant to the edge. Sow to the edge. And then when harvest time came, what would be natural to do in my field? Reap to the edge. Harvest to the edge. God says the first part is fine. The second part, do not do that. Utterly unnatural. And that's the negative part. What's the positive? Rather than harvest that yourselves, stop and leave that. And leave it for particular people. What particular people? These bundle of terms come up All the time in the Bible. They actually came up in our call to worship, if you notice. The poor, the sojourner. Who's the sojourner? That's a non-Israelite living in Israel. The non-Israelite living in Israel. An outsider. The poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Do not... Pick grapes. Do not pick wheat. Do not go back over the olive trees with another shake or two or three. Leave that for people who don't have any field. And there will be some Israelites without fields. Leave it for non-Israelites. 
Leave it for the kid with no dad. Leave it for the woman who lost her husband. Do it. Now, try, and we really can't, but let's try to picture what it would be like hundreds of years later to be an Israelite living on your family's land that has lived there a long time. And if you're going to obey this law, picture what it would be like when harvest time comes and you have worked and worked and worked in under a you know Judean Middle Eastern sun and you've worked with your family or maybe you have other workers and it comes time for harvest and harvest is like time to cash in. It's that good feeling when you finally get paid for all you've done and you get to that moment and then they start coming. Can you imagine what it felt like that as you're out there with your workers that all of a sudden these different faces start showing up and maybe climbing up over your stone wall kids you've never seen before and you don't say anything and everything that they're picking they didn't spend all year on that like you did and you may be thinking good grief the whole rest of this one row I could sell that, get the plow I really want, and take care of her. And God is saying, don't do that. Picture, if you can, what this must have done in the minds and hearts of children of those landowners. You know, children have always been this way. They always will be this way. They want, when they see grown-ups doing grown-up stuff, they want to do it too. Now, not so much in a knowledge-based economy, you know, like, ooh, let me type in the data entry, you know. It's, but when you're doing, you know, stuff like, you know, out in the yard or stirring something in the pot, they want to stir. They, they want to go pick, up, pick something or snip something. Children have always, wanted to be that, have always wanted to be that way. I guarantee you that in Israel, there were Israelite children, boys and girls, that watched the harvest times, very special, lots of excitement, and they thought, I want to go out there and do that. And, you know, children can pick grapes. Children can gather olives. Now, in a family that knew this law, can you picture, here's a child, and they've been told, pick the grapes. So they're just going down the road with their basket, and then they hit this zone, however far from the boundary or the stone wall, and a worker or a parent says, honey, you need to stop. Why? There, there's, there's still grapes down the line. We're not supposed to pick all the way down the line. Why? God says not to. He says that's for uh, children with no daddy. It's for ladies that lost their husband. It's for people without fields like we have. So you need to turn around and go to the next row. God says to do, he says this three times in the law to do this. Now, fleshing this out as a church, what is our cultural equivalent of a field? What's our cultural equivalent of an Israelite's field? Initially, as I started thinking about it, where I went first in my mind was money. And I don't think that's it. Because 
Think about if you owned land, a blight could come through and ruin all your crops. Or the locust could come and just eat everything. And that happens in the Bible. Or an enemy could come and if they didn't completely take over your land and kill you, they could burn everything you grew. But if you owned the land, even if it's destroyed by blight or by locusts or by fire, you still have the land. So, all right, let's go back to the question. What do we have in our cultural setting that you can have it? Because that's not true of money. If you lose your money, you lose your money. But what's something that you have that even if it's ruined, you still have it? And it's the thing that for us holds all the potential. And, you know, like an Israelite, it's something over which we are fiercely protective. Have you figured out what it is yet? It is our time. It is our schedules. And if you think that I'm overreaching, I don't think I am. And think about this. Think about, with this in mind, how attitudes about children have changed. It used to be that having a ton of children was great. Why? Well, besides the fact that, like, that's your 401k, it's that more people to take care of this land and more people that are my own flesh and blood that I know, that I can invest in, who will take care of this land when I'm gone. It was great to have a ton of children. Now, it's not great. And there's probably a multitude of reasons for that, but one is because children undermine schedules. And they monkey with our time. Attitudes have drastically changed. Now, if you say you have five children, five was a warm-up in an agrarian world. It's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, I'll pray for you that you only have five. If it is the case that our cultural equivalent to an Israelite's field is our time, what is it that comes naturally to us? And increasingly so, what comes naturally is to absolutely take it to the edge with what we want to do. And there's, there's not just one reason for that. There's a host of reasons for that. Uh, one of the most recent ones is we're in, we're in a fierce economic downturn. We're in a global economic downturn. And one reality of that is that if you've got a job and you're not crazy about it, there's probably a line behind you of people that want to get it. And so you had better show yourself worthy of being granted that job, which means you better work a lot. Because there may be somebody right behind you who's happy to put in a 70, 80 hour a week if you're not. Uh, a little bit less recent would just be how technology has changed our lives. If you have a laptop or if you have a smartphone, you can work anywhere. If you can work anywhere, what will you do? You will work everywhere. It will get to be 9 or 10 or 11, and you might sit in bed. If you're married, you might be sit sitting in bed next to a spouse trying to sleep, and you're still texting, and you're still emailing. And even as you finish, there is no felt sense of, shh, done. Never comes. Just, nah. 
I'll, I'll start early tomorrow. All the way out to the edges. A less recent, I think, factor would be this. It used to be that your identity was your family. Your last name was a big deal. A last name means almost nothing now. Unless you're in a small town and you've been there for a long, long time. And I mean, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. If I went back to Jackson and said, I'm a Haybig from Jackson, like almost no one cares. And how much less would they care in a different city like Greenville? That's just really not part of life anymore. So how do you establish your identity? Through what you do. That's your merit and that's your value to anybody looking. And it is our tendency, because of those things and just busy hearts, to take our time and schedule what we want to do all the way out to the edges. And in so doing, there's not room for others. Now, if I stop there, I think what you would have been given this morning is maybe a neat reflection on time management. Or the usage of time. But guys, this is a church. And a church is not a social service. A church is a church. And the church is entrusted with the Word of God. And what we are supposed to do when we come together is open up His Word and say, what do we have that is distinctive? What we have that's distinctive is the gospel. What does the gospel have to do with passages about reaping and gleaning and fields and land ownership? And what does it have to do with the fact that it is our tendency to take things out to the edges with, the, with our schedules and our time? <clears throat> There's two questions we love to ask of passages. Learn how to ask these questions and answer them, and you'll start seeing Jesus everywhere. And the questions are, what does this passage show me about us who need redeeming? What does this passage show me about God who does the redeeming? Let's ask those two questions of these passages, this law. What does this law show us about ourselves who need the redeeming? Um, something not pretty. You know what it is? Let, let me just ask you this question. Why is it I suspect that there are things in Greenville that you want to be involved with. Or maybe you've read some article about some group that's really doing something, getting its hands dirty to really change the quality of life for people in our city. Maybe right here in the downtown you thought, I want to help out with that. I want to be a part of that. And you told yourself that maybe last September. And you thought, I'm going to do that. And now it's next September. Why is, the, why is that? That all kinds of errands were accomplished. And if the errands weren't accomplished till 8 o'clock, we stayed up till 10.30 till they were. But that went undone. And why is it that the balm that we put on that little sense of irritation about that is, you know what, I am going to do that when things calm down. Let me ask you this. Why is it that if we are honest, sometimes community groups or our time to work in the nursery feels so intrusive. 
it, it literally feels like someone is trespassing on something that is mine. Do you know why it is? It's because we, deep down, feel like everything that's mine is ultimately for me. And you know what this, you know what this law says? What God gives to Israel fulfills a greater purpose. You know what the greater purpose is? I'm going to bless my people that they might be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to give you great crops for Israel and for non-Israel. I'm going to give you time for you and for not you. That's why I give my people time. And it is our hearts that want to say, I know I need to help. I know I need to volunteer. I know I need to have better conversations with people. But it's my time. And we are white-knuckled. How far out do people have to schedule with us to have quality time? There have been points in my life quite recently where it was embarrassing. No margins. What does God say to do about that? Does He come to us and say, well, that's selfish, as usual. Do differently. Well, He does say do differently. But what does God in His love give us that is like the silver bullet for change? Look at the end of Deuteronomy. This is so good. You would have to ransack the English language to come up with the right adjective for how good this is. Deuteronomy 24, God lays it out for the third time in this law. And then He says what in verse 22? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. What's the only way? What's the only way you're going to be able to leave margins without white knuckles, but with a loving heart, is to remember that, you know what? My natural condition is that I'm a slave. Jesus said that explicitly in the Gospel of John. The Apostle Paul says it explicitly in the book of Romans that we showed up slaves. And the only reason that we have time that we can call our own, like the only reason an Israelite had land they could call their own, is because He rescued us and gave us what we could not earn. And when people who need us, church people, downtown prez people, and Utterly outside people who don't believe what we believe. When they start coming over the stone wall of your schedule, we are to look at them and say, that is me. That is me. God gives the fields. God gives the time. God gives the harvest. For me and for him. For me and for her. That's what it shows us about us. And we've already said, what does it show us about God? That God is the God of Israel that can work a plow, and God is the God of people who cannot work a plow and have no land to do it. He cares about everybody. He cares about everybody. How much does He care? Think about this. God owns the cosmos. 
There's a lot of material stuff in the cosmos. Earth is a speck. What's the most valuable, tangible thing to God? What would you say? A galaxy? A system of galaxies? The Bible makes it very clear what the most tangible, precious thing, matter to God is. It's the blood of His Son. Who should have the rights to all of it? The owner. And where does it go? To the people who can't pay for it. To the people who don't deserve it. To the people who cannot earn it. To the people crawling over the walls. Maybe running from the walls. Who needs it? And He gives it. God says, be holy because I'm holy. I'm the Lord your God. This is what I'm like. That's why I want you to be that way. Greenville will find out what our real theology is by our margins. I don't care what we're saying or singing. I do care. But that's how Greenville will find out. And let me end with this. If you were a landowner, what would you have wanted God to specify that He doesn't specify? Where do you turn around? How many yards or cubits shy of the boundary should you turn around? And guess what God does? He leaves it to your discretion. And may we say that you would... Whatever an Israelite farmer verbalized about his beliefs, you would find out what he really believed by when he did a 180 with that plow. That was his real theology. If he needed great mercy from God, a lot of buffer. If he needed little mercy from God and forgot he was a slave, small buffer, if any. Why do you give your heart to a community group? Why do you love children in nursery and remember their names and change their diapers? Why do you ask someone here to lunch rather than sit back and talk about, this church is not reaching out to me. How much mercy do you need? What were you? God calls us to remember this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that neither with our um, salaries or our schedules, or our house, or anything that you've entrusted to us, we pray that we would not use it simply for ourselves to the edges, but that we would leave boundaries for the poor and the lonely, the person who does not believe what we believe, the fatherless, the widow, the churched, the unchurched, We pray that we'll do so for the gospel's sake. We were slaves, and you saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.